Now I want to turn us towards our sermon text for this morning. So if you would like, you could turn with me to Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, verse 9, or you could sit and close your eyes and just let God's word wash over you. Let love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil. Cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Take the lead in honoring one another. Do not lack diligence and zeal. Be servant in the spirit. Serve our master. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says Yahweh. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. And Father God, we are so grateful for your word. We are so grateful, as as Paul said at the very beginning, that you have uttered instruction for us and that you have given us the Holy Spirit to be able to do the things that you are calling us to do. You're not a capricious God commanding us to do things that are beyond our abilities. How silly and miserable would that be? But you give us everything that we need. And so help us to see this very, very important order that first and foremost, we must love. And then out of that love, we must live. Help us to see that today, Father. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said. All right, so are you doing a little bit better since the last time I asked how you were doing? (laughs) Oh, goodness. Here's where I want to start. I want to start by asking a question that might sound a little presumptuous. How's the work of applying Romans 12 to your life been going the past couple of weeks? How's the work 
of applying Romans 12 to your life been going the past couple of weeks? To which your first response might be, I didn't know we were supposed to be doing that. Did, <laughs> did you? You see, often I think we move from Sunday to Sunday and maybe we couldn't even remember some of the things that the Holy Spirit revealed to us in the text the previous week. I'm not saying that to shame you, please. I'm saying it only because I think that Paul desires that we would be thinking of these things week to week because he's building an argument. And far more exciting, Paul is building a church family, right? This is what we keep seeing, this graph that I don't have a name for yet. He's building a church family. He's helping us. He's building out Grace Church to be truly transformed disciples in body and mind who are pulling the future age into this present age. He's showing us what it looks like to be the church in the world today. And we've got to keep hold of these things before us week by week because Paul is assuming that we're going to be growing, changing, developing, transforming. Began two weeks ago in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, when he told us that God's mercies, which have been on display throughout the letter, demand a response. And remember one of our little catchphrases. Grace is opposed to earning, but grace births effort. I, I keep saying this to you because I hope you won't forget this. And our effort looks like presenting our bodies, Paul says, as living sacrifices and constantly renewing our minds. And in that way, we'll be transformed. A transformation that's happening in our lives over the course of our lives so that we can remember another of our little catchphrases. If we're going to change, something will have to change. It's not going to just happen. We have to be intentional. And then last week we learned that a true disciple of Jesus can't function apart from the body of Messiah, but must be a functioning part of the body of Messiah, a local expression of the worldwide church. That this is one of the most basic and foundational principles of discipleship assumed by Jesus and the apostles. Namely, we've all been given gifts, empowered by the Spirit, and those gifts are not merely for ourselves, but for the good of the church family, and thus for the kingdom of God here on earth. And so we must be engaged in active parts of the church to be healthy disciples of Jesus, which gave us another little line to hold on to. The question isn't if you will serve. The question is, where will you serve at Grace Church? A question you got to answer. So, Paul gave us the foundation for transformation within the church family, verses 1 and 2. He described the importance of using our gifts for the good of the church family, verses 3 to 8. And now in verses 9 to 21, he is going to focus his attention on relationships, on relationships within the church family and outside of the church family. And as we see him do this, we're going to see a change in Paul's style of instruction. It's what we call exhortation. There's an urgency, a, a strong encouragement, some would call it. Others would call it a command. He has higher expectations. These are obligations that he has for us. 
This is what he is saying life in the community is supposed to look like. And he's presuming that since he provides this detailed description for us, that we're going to be serious about being familiar with these traits. That we'd be able to rattle them off if, he were, if, if we were asked. I think Paul is assuming that if he showed up to Grace on a Sunday morning and walked through those double doors and, and was greeted by our greeters with, with their wonderful smiling faces, that he could start kind of moseying through our community and asking if these things are working out. He could ask specific questions, maybe even ask, hey, could you give me some examples of what it looks like to love? And I think he'd have a full expectation that, that we'd rattle off things that are found here. Just like if Jesus came in right and started asking questions around, say, the Sermon on the Mount, all of these things that, that he assumes that we'll be practicing, that we'll build our lives on as disciples. And so we should ask ourselves, how would we do in that review? What would be the things that we could say? Where could be the things that we're pointing to specifically? in these ways that we, we all, I think, like naturally say, like, how do I do this? <laughs> they would say, well, I gave you answers. <laughs> I made it so clear. Now, before I go another minute, I want to address something because maybe the last two minutes or so started to get you really uncomfortable. And I get that because I grew up in a tradition that was all about externals. It was all about externals when it came to faith. It was all about rules and, and checking off boxes that others had determined should be checked off. And I know the kind of culture that that can create in a church family. It can create a culture that feels oppressive based on performance with a sense that you can never measure up. Where one always feels that they're being judged, they're always being compared to others, they're always in a state where their imperfections are on display, always sensing the tyranny of a critical voice inside their ears that then starts regularly erupting inside your head. A culture where you can feel like you're always trying to fix the exterior of who you are, that you're never going to arrive. And so, so you end up with this vague, unsettling feeling that if you make a mistake, someone's going to jump out to blame or criticize or punish you. As someone who you feel is forcing you to do things and be someone that you don't want any part of. I know what that's like. And I have two things that I'd like to say about that. One from Paul and one from me. First from Paul. I want to make sure that, that you understand, even as I think Paul is very clearly changing tack here, and he's moving towards exhortation and command and very specific instructions, he has never lost sight of the reality that, the, that what he is about to exhort and command, and command must flow from within the believer as a result of a transformed heart and a renewed mind and a body offered up as a sacrifice. It's what naturally flows or, or what, what maybe we should say supernaturally flows flows by the Holy Spirit from someone saturated in a deep understanding of God's grace, so much so that they can't help but respond 
in acts of love and life poured out in good deeds. Okay, so I want to I want to make sure that's absolutely clear in your thinking this morning because it is so important. Our goodness and our good acts and our good deeds cannot spring from compulsion, especially from somebody else, but from grace transformed heart desires. That's the culture that Paul is after. That's from Paul, now from me. For the past few weeks, I've I've been expressing to you my excitement for what I'm seeing in Romans 12 and following. Things I've never seen before as Paul gives us incredibly clear and straightforward instructions for what it looks like to be the church at this moment in time. And this week, my excitement only grew because as I studied these things in chapter 12 and as I read ahead and, and see the things that are coming for us that speak to the culture of a church family, I'm really, really excited because I feel like the things that we've tried to aspire to here at Grace are very much in line with what Paul is on about. And it's not gonna be some radical new thing, namely that we're trying to create a gentle environment of the good news plus safety plus time. This thing that I is saying that I ripped off from my good friend Ray Ortland and have been trying to build out here at Grace because this is, this is what everybody needs. This is what will protect us from being the kind of oppressive culture that I just talked about because this equation, this equation will help nurture an environment where our goodness will indeed spring from transformed hearts. You see, the good news is a message of rescue and life. And we are rescued from something to something. That's transformation. And this message of rescue, right, is for bad people, which means you. You're a bad people. This is a message of rescue for bad people through the finished work of the Messiah on the cross and the endless power of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Multiple exposures, constant immersion, wave upon wave of grace and truth according to the Bible. Grace, which is opposed to earning, but grace which speaks the truth about our need to pursue transformation. Grace that assumes growth and that we're going to have a role in that growth. But for that to work well, for the good news to work like that, our culture must also be marked by safety. A non-accusing environment. No embarrassing anybody. No manipulation. No oppression. No condescension. But respect and sympathy and understanding where sinners can confess and unburden their souls. Sinners like me and like you can confess and unburden their souls. Are you carrying around a weight of sin that nobody else knows about? It's not the way it's supposed to work. Because the only way that we're going to change is by admitting to each other where we need to change. 
And in an environment where we need an environment where no one seeking Jesus has anything to fear in that. Because we all understand that we're here to grow. Do we all understand that? We're, we're here to grow. In order to change, something's going to need to change. And as we're going to see shortly, we're here to love each other in the process of transformation. That you start to see it's like this greenhouse. We're, we're trying to create this nurturing environment where these seedlings and somewhat stronger trees, like we can all be growing various points at where we're at in our relationship with Jesus. And because it's a process, it's a process of transformation, none of this is going to be possible without time. No pressure, not even self-imposed pressure, no deadlines on growth, because we all know that this is going to come in fits and starts, right? There are going to be seasons. Have you ever experienced this in your Christian life? Seasons of explosive growth. Like, oh my goodness, I just feel like so much closer to Jesus and I see all these things happening in my life and I see fruit just abounding. And then you hit a season of absolute plateau where nothing seems to be moving in your life. That's why so much time is necessary for this as humans. Do you, do you remember what I said a few weeks ago that, that our 60s are likely our third best decade and our 70s are our second best decade and our 80s are our first best decade? <laughs> when I said that a couple weeks ago, I saw this older couple look at each other and just kind of like, that's us, here we are, we're hitting our stride. That's what it looked like anyway. I was like, yes! Or what I heard a preacher this week, I heard this preacher quote some, some psychologist, I can't remember their name, was talking about stages of human development. And, th- and this psychologist said that the next to the last stage in our lives of development is called convergence, where everything really starts to come together for us. And that the earliest that that happens, the earliest is in our 50s. And I was like, 54, baby. Here we go. Like, and I'm actually starting to feel that. Like I'm starting to feel on my own, like just starting to feel like, yeah, I, I feel like I'm seeing certain things come together and, and converging. What a great word. But it doesn't happen until you're in your 50s at the earliest. That's why we talk about here at Grace, a culture of urgency, but not hurry. These are urgent things but not hurry because no one changes quickly. We need a lot of space for complicated people to rethink their lives at a deep level, patiently plodding, right? I just want us to all aspire to be plotters. Plotters. Why? Because God is patient. God is patient. Hallelujah. God is patient. Again, I'm so encouraged that this expression of our cultural aspirations here at Grace are right in line with Paul's cultural expectations for us here at Grace. And as your pastor, and I think I can speak for all of the pastors and elders in this, the things that I've just said are really important to us as a leadership. They're really important to us. As we hear the commands 
of who we must be and become as we listen to what is expected of us, as we absorb the things that we must put into practice. Okay, (laughs) get ready because there are 28 things. 28 things in this text of verse 9 to 21. And it's just the beginning of chapter 12 to 16. We have to hear these things in light of the foundational assumption that our response to these expectations flows from an internal transformation and inside an environment of the good news and safety and time. Okay, does that make sense? See, this is really important to me that we, that we get this culturally, that, that we have this kind of an environment that we're receiving these things. These things of what we must do and the way we must do them. Because none of this will happen without you making it happen. Right? That's where I began. How's it going working these things out? See, the elders can't make this happen in your life. You have to do this. And, and, and we have to do this, right? Like, we're all in this together. Transforming. Bringing about this culture. Living out these values Paul is teaching us. Okay. So, I know this has been the longest introduction of all time. But I have two more things before we dig into the text. Just two. First, while there are 28 separate proverb-like bits of wisdom and behavior that Paul is going to exhort here, right? Like, it, it almost, when I first read this, I was like, wow, it seems like Paul woke up and thought, I'm going to send out some tweets this morning. 28 of them. Please do not see these as a list of rules. Don't do that. Don't do that. That's not what Paul is doing. He's not giving you a list of rules. He's describing character. What does Christian character look like? What does it look like when the Holy Spirit is at work in a community of disciples building up what is called koinonia? While you may be struck by one trait more than another, all of them are acting together in Paul's mind. It's like he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, right? And so often we get that wrong. We think he's saying fruits of the Spirit, but he doesn't say fruits of the Spirit. He says fruit of the Spirit. It's like a cluster of things that operate all together. I don't get to pick one grape off of that cluster. It's the whole fruit that's supposed to be operating in my life. And in the same way, these 28 things that we're going to see are all supposed to be working in each Christian, in all of their lives. Second, while all Christians are expected to do all of these all the time, I also think that walking out of here with the goal of growing in every single one of these 28 things all at once would cause you to throw up your hands and attempt none of them. Right? <laughs> Isn't that what we do when we feel overwhelmed when someone gives us? Like, have you ever given your kid a list of chores to do? And it's like 10 things long. And what do they do? Oh, God. I I can't. Ah. Right? And that's that's what's going to happen if you think, I'm going to do all 28 of these. When my friend Paul takes me skiing, he sees many things that aren't working well in me. Because he's an excellent skier. He sees things that need work for me to grow as a skier. And because 
He's also a very good instructor. He usually only gives me one thing to work on in an afternoon of skiing. And then the next time we go out, he gives me a different thing to work on. Because if he gave me five things at once, I wouldn't grow one step closer to Paul as a skier, right? Rather, I, instead, I'd be overwhelmed and, and frustrated and, and likely I'd try and give up on getting better. And do you know what that has resulted in in about the last year and a half of skiing with Paul? This last Monday morning, I went out skiing by myself, carved out a couple of hours just to get up there. And as I was skiing, I could hear Paul in my head. Keep the skis closer together. Use your poles. Don't, don't bend too low. Don't, don't, go too, don't bend too far forward. Stand up. Move at the hips. Face the turn. Lessons that he'd given me over and over that were starting to gel together to make me a better skier. And, and do you know what? It wasn't oppressive. It, it didn't feel like a condescending voice. In my, it was fun. Like, I'm getting to be a better skier. And then I went out Friday and wiped out. And so, here in the same way, family, today you're going to hear 13 maxims of love in an age of the uncivil and 15 strategies for living good, conquering evil. And that order is critical. Love and living. I don't think that's accidental in Paul. So here's what I want you to ask the Holy Spirit right now. I want you to ask the Holy Spirit right now, what is the one thing, maybe one from each category, that you want me to start working on this week, Holy Spirit? What's the one thing out of each category that you want me to start working on this week? Listen to them now. Let love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil and cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Take the lead in honoring one another. Do not lack diligence in zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the master. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says Yahweh. But if your enemy is hungry, feed your enemy. If your enemy is thirsty, give your enemy something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. So, 13 maxims of love. Are you ready? Strap in. We're going to move. If Romans 1 to 11 was the sermon, one might consider this the application portion of his sermon with 28 
points. Paul here is channeling, I believe, the wisdom writers. See Proverbs. Jesus. See the Sermon on the Mount. He's giving us lightning sketches of the Christian community. Number one, let love be without hypocrisy. It's only two words in the original, a noun and an adjective. In almost all translations, supply a verb. Now, I don't think that that's necessarily wrong, but I think it hides what Paul is actually saying. Namely, Paul actually declares love sincere. That's the two words. And the reason I think that distinction is important is because I think that this actually functions as a heading for the rest of what he wants us to see as examples of love being worked out. In other words, what is most important in the age of the uncivil, the discourteous, the impolite, the bad-mannered, what is required is sincere love. Or John Stott, love that is not theater, but belongs to the real world. This is love that is not play acting, but serving one another without hidden agendas. This is love that is more than putting on a face. It's genuine. It's sincere. It is less about what we feel and more about what we do because, right, we won't always feel like loving other people. I didn't hear an amen. Thank you. And again and again, listen to N.T. Wright, again and again in Christian experience, we discover that when we behave towards someone as though we really did love them, okay, right? Like, I don't love you. I don't even like you. But I'm going to behave like I do. What happens when you start behaving towards someone as if you really like them or love them? Have you ever done this? You start to like them. You actually grow towards loving them. The other person's welfare quickly springs up in you. So says, right, we do well to remind ourselves that if we waited until we were quite sure that our motives were completely pure and right, we would never love anybody. So what does love sincere look like? Number two and number three of the 13. Detest evil, cling to what is good. So, we see, love is discerning. Isn't it ironic that the first thing that he says love does is hate? But when considering the object of that hate, it makes sense, doesn't it? Because love is discerning. It is so fervent and devoted to the beloved that it detests, it hates every evil that would come against him or her that is loved. And the flip side makes sense. Grab hold tightly of the good. The word here that Paul uses for cling or grab hold is the same that's used in sexual relations. In other words, I think Paul is saying we are so close. We are to be so close and so intimate with good. It's as if we are one with it. Number four, love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. In other words, love is affectionate. It's affectionate. Paul uses two words here for family love, showing us that our spiritual family should be representative 
of what the best of all earthly families would have present, deep affection. The two words he uses is one is a deep affection, kind of like a parental love towards a child, and the other is a sibling kind of affection, brothers towards sisters. In other words, be authentically loving towards one another with a familial affection. I see so many of these things, these 13 maxims, are aimed right at relationships within the church family. We're seeing that. Number five, take the lead in honoring one another. So love is honoring and affirming. It's the only place that I am aware of, and someone maybe can correct me, it's the only place that I'm aware of in the Bible where it upholds competition. Competition is encouraged. And you know what? I think it's the kind of competition that we don't compete in nearly enough. Some might think this is a bit confusing because Paul just spoke in verse 3 of being humble and that we don't serve for praise. But what he says here is don't confuse that truth in reality with not praising service. You should praise service. We must do that. And we should do it with vigor. Compete with each other in showing honor. Man, did you see the way that Bob just, you know, complimented it? I'm, gonna, I'm one up in that. Right? And Paul says, yeah, go get them. Do it. Number six, seven, and eight. Do not lack dil- diligence and zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the master. In other words, love is enthusiastic. I think this one's my favorite. <laughs> Don't be lazy in enthusiasm, he says. In other words, be fired up. Get passionate. Whatever that looks like for you. Right? Because it looks different for different people. For me, it's just like, blah. For you, that might look different. Your passion may express itself differently. Do this in the Holy Spirit. One translation says, be aglow with the Spirit. Not like a glowing lamp, but think like glowing, bubbling lava flows. In other words, be molten lava hot with the Spirit, says Paul. And then guide all of that in service towards our King Jesus and his cause. Number 9, 10, and 11. Rejoice in hope, be patient in affliction, be persistent in prayer. In other words, love stays the course. It's not easy living with broken people in a broken down world with evil always lurking and trying to overcome the good, is it? So how does love respond? It rejoices in the hope of the future and coming age. It remains firm in the regular daily afflictions and tribulations that come our way. It is stubbornly devoted to talking with our Father as a natural outgrowth of our relationship with Him, bringing before Him all of our all of our rejoicing and all of our affliction so that it fuels, our prayers fuel hopefulness and hardens our resolve in the difficulties. Number 12, share with the saints in their needs. In other words, love is generous. Loving people are on the lookout for those in need. Where are they? Seeking out those that are on the margins, ready to provide to them what is lacking. The word share here is used, that is used by Paul is one that many church folks are familiar with. If you've been in the church for a long time, you've heard the phrase or the word koinonia, haven't you? Koinonia. And unfortunately, as words go, right, we can, 
change their meanings over time. And I, I think koinonia in the church, we kind of throw that around as like, oh, this is this way to have, you know, connection in community. And it becomes this kind of casual connection in community. But that's not what the biblical word means. Bound up in this word koinonia and sharing is to share in needs, to share in suffering, to share our resources with those who need food and clothing or housing. Number 13, pursue hospitality. Love is hospitable. <laughs> Love is hospitable. But what does that mean? Again, church folk probably think it means having someone over for lunch, right? It's hospitality. We go to hospitality rooms. But the word is philoxenia. It's a compound word in Greek. Phileo, love, and xenos, stranger. Right? So Paul has already talked about loving our family. Now he's saying love the stranger. And this is incredibly important in a culture. You know what? I, it's so hard to remember the culture that's actually being written to, isn't it? Because we're like trapped in our culture. Did you know in Paul's time, they didn't have hotels and restaurants? So what did you do if you were a stranger traveling to say, can you imagine people coming into Salida? There ain't a hotel and a restaurant to be found. What would they do? Where would they stay? Where would they eat? This is where Christians fill the gap. That's what he's saying. And he doesn't just say, hey, you know, get around to hospitality when you can. What does he say? It's in your Bible. Look. Pursue hospitality. Here's how the uh, church father Origen said it. We are not just to receive the stranger when he comes to us, but we're actually to inquire after, look carefully for strangers. This is so convicting. Goodness. We're to pursue them and search them out everywhere. Lest perchance somewhere, somewhere there's a stranger in the street or lying without a roof over their heads. And Origen says, we don't want that to happen because we're Christians. So there they are, 13 maxims of love in an age of the uncivil, and now 15 strategies for living, good, conquering evil. I know, I know you're thinking he's never going to make it through these, but we are. We're going to do it. These are mainly, I believe, for relationships outside the church family, especially our enemies. And get ready because they're almost unbelievable at times. Number one and two, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Revenge is the way of the world. Is it not? This feeling is embedded in humanity. I mean, can we just all admit that we like revenge movies? Right? Like, we, we like when the bad guy gets it. Don't we? We like cheer. We love the vigilante movies. I mean, Denzel Washington almost owns this genre, right? Man on Fire, Equalizer 1, 2, and number 3. Or maybe if you don't watch really intense movies like that, maybe you watch a little bit of a less intense movie, but still has a very major revenge plot line in it, right? The Princess Bride. <laughs> Hello. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. 
Man spent his whole life looking for the six-fingered man. And when it ended, he's like, now what do I do? The Christian ethic is radically countercultural. Paul is clearly picking up on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where, where Jesus instructed the way of the kingdom, which we are to practice, which we're to build our lives upon as a sure rock, to bless those who curse us, to go further, to pray for them, to do good to them, our persecutors. More on that in a moment. Number three and four, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Love is sympathetic and not merely to those in the family, but to those who don't know Jesus How powerful will our witness be if we were to celebrate the joys in our community and carry the deep pains that they carry when instead of standing aloof and separate in the highs and lows of an entire community, we purposely join with them in common humanity showing the love of our Messiah and in his name. Number five, live in harmony with one another. Paul returns to the kind of thinking words that he used in verse 3. Literally, think the same way towards one another. This one probably leans a little bit back towards the church community because being, having a renewed mind means sharing the same convictions and, and concerns. And yet, can you imagine the power of pointing this kind of ethic outward, showing a world mightily struggling with harmony what it would look like to find places where we can actually agree believers and unbelievers? <laughs> Can you imagine the power that that would bring? Number six, seven, and eight. Do not be proud. Associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. John Stott said, there are few kinds of pride. Few kinds of pride are worse than snobbery. Few kinds of pride are worse than snobbery, except maybe coffee snobbery. Have you, ever, have you ever read the book of First Caffeine? It's an apocryphal book. Thou shalt not drink Folgers or Maxwell House. Coffee in the can or pre-ground coffee from the grocery shelf. Have you read this? But thou shalt drink single origin, organically sourced, fair trade coffee that's been roasted in the last 30 days is fresh with ground right before you use it in your Japanese crafted pour over with bamboo filters at a ratio of 35 grams of beans to 350 grams of water at 195 degrees served in a pre-warmed mug with raw sugar and cream. That's how you should drink coffee. And then when you do, you'll just, you will say, praise Jesus. Well, maybe I have some of my own transformation to do because Paul gives no quarter for stratifying our society into classes, whether by coffee taste or anything else. We're to forget all distinctions and classes, all tribes and castes, all social and economic categories. Instead, like Jesus, never be condescending, but make real friends. Make real friends with the poor. And now the final seven strategies in verses 17 to 21 where we return to the issue of revenge. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath. Because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says Yahweh. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will heap fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. 
I think Paul is chiefly concerned with a personal response to evil in this world. He looks at the strategies of the culture around him, and they're completely opposite of this. One Greek philosopher in Paul's time said it this way, to take vengeance on one's enemies is nobler than to come to terms with them. For to retaliate is just, and that which is just is noble. So a courageous man ought not to allow himself to be beaten. But that strategy was not working good then, and it's not working good now, is it? Good doesn't increase in a culture like that. Only evil increases and swallows humans whole. And I wonder if we've really, really pondered this passage before. If we've really been willing to deal with it head on and take it at face value. Do not repay evil for evil. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone which means inside these walls and with everybody out there. One commentator reflects, we are to find creative, surprising new ways of dealing with people that hurt us. This is a huge challenge. But here it is in black and white. Does it feel huge to you? It feels huge to me. Unless you think that feeding your hungry enemy and slating the thirst of your enemy means going soft on evil, that's not the case. We're going to get to chapter 13 where he talks about the power that God puts in the hands of the state to wield the sword and bring punishment against evil. But what he's saying here is that disciples of Jesus are not to take justice into their own hands and try and bring it about. And read him carefully. He's not saying that vengeance is wrong. He's just saying vengeance is not ours. It belongs to God. It's his. He will repay. He will do so in his time because he's holy and good and sovereign and he will do it perfectly. And whether or not rulers deal with the matter that we're concerned about, the point is we're supposed to trust God to deal with it in his own time and in his own way. That's what Paul means by allow God's anger room to work. Because as N.T. Wright says, God has his own ways of bringing people to their senses and of letting them feel the results of their own folly or wickedness. It isn't up to us to hurry that process along or anticipate it. That's not our job. That's God's doing. Worship team, would you come up? And in a move that may blow our minds, Jesus teaches us that in the world of his kingdom, persecution and curses from our enemies actually brings a life of flourishing. <laughs> I'm still trying to work that out. That, we're sh that we should be glad for it. Be glad and rejoice when others persecute you. In my name. Because you're just in a long line of all the prophets who spoke truth and were persecuted because of it. When we refuse to take revenge and deliberately rid ourselves of a desire for it, we're taking responsibility for our own mental and emotional health. We are refusing to allow our future lives to be determined by the evil that someone else has done. Don't give someone else the right to keep you bitter. Don't you see? Don't be overwhelmed by evil. 
Don't be conquered and vanished by evil. Don't let it swallow you whole. Conquer evil with good. And isn't this the way of our king? Wasn't he wronged? Wasn't he the victim of perverted justice at the hands of sinful men? And didn't he let evil conquer him when he died on the cross and then overcame evil with the power of his own love and life? And isn't that what Paul is saying? If, if, you, could, if you could take one thing and practice in the category of love and one thing for a strategy of living your life, you could be just like him. May it be so.